Mars is getting closer, and Starlink satellites spark angst amongst astronomers. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. This week, Mars is set to come closer to Earth than it has been in more than a decade. The Mars opposition is when the red planet becomes a visible bright red spot in the night sky. We'll talk with Seminole State College Planetarium Director Derek Demeter about the opposition and how to experience it from home. Then, SpaceX launched another batch of its Starlink satellites this week, but the orbital constellation is causing some worry in the observational astronomy community. How are these tiny satellites impacting the future of night sky observations? Our panel of expert scientists from UCF weigh in. That's ahead, but first, SpaceX is set to launch four astronauts to the International Space Station later this month. NASA is working with SpaceX to ferry astronauts to the station in SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, launching on a Falcon 9 rocket. SpaceX successfully completed a test mission with astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley earlier this year. The planned Halloween launch, carrying three NASA astronauts and one Japanese astronaut, will be the first operational mission under NASA's commercial crew program. Last week, I spoke with one of those astronauts, Shannon Walker, as she finished up training at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. So our training is basically wrapping up. This is our last full week of training, um, finishing up with our last simulations. Um, After this, we will have, um, we will go into, we actually have a little bit of downtime since our, our, um, our training shifted by a week or our launch date shifted by a week. And so we'll do a few, what we call refresher uh, sims. And so we'll just probably have a couple of, of casual sims. We'll actually get some time off to make sure all our, you know, got everything wrapped up at home before we leave the planet for uh, six or so months. And then two weeks before launch, we'll go into quarantine. We'll spend one week in quarantine at the Johnson space center and then one week in quarantine in Florida. Mm-hmm. before we launch. Before that, have you have you been to the facilities at Kennedy Space Center? Have you seen the launch pad? Um, have you watched a Falcon 9 launch from here? So yes, we have We have done training. We have been out to, to Kennedy to actually walk through some of the uh, launch date activities. And that is one thing that we will do when we're out there. We go through um, a series of activities that we call dry dress. So it's a dry dress rehearsal um, of, of the day of launch. We'll do that. I think that's three or four days before we launch. Uh, we'll get in our suits. We'll go through everything, including getting into the capsule. And then we'll, um, call a halt to the activities just before we're supposed to launch. So, yep, we, we do all that training there. Mm -hmm. And have you seen a Falcon launch, uh, or Falcon 9 launch from here? Uh, I've not seen one in person. No, I've seen lots of shuttle launches and I've seen Soyuz launches, but I have not seen, I have not had the opportunity to see a Falcon launch. Uh, how closely have you been working with Bob and Doug about kind of what to expect um, on launch day and, and the ride uphill? Uh, can you kind of share some of the insight they've given you? Um, we actually haven't had a chance to spend too much time with them, but we have had some good debriefs. Um, they were able to talk to us even while they were still on the space station. We got uh, some time with them to talk about um, what it was like to fly in the the Dragon capsule. They gave us some insights on the the sounds that we would hear. I think one of the most important things they told us was that the 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 Dragon actually flies like the simulator, which is which is really good um, and not unexpected. But um, it, we we know what to expect from the flying of the vehicle part. So the 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 tips that they gave us really had to do more with um, the other things 
the noises, how to choreograph working in the capsule. They were already looking ahead. They knew, you know, they had two people. We've got four people. How do you accomplish things without, you know, running all over each other the whole time? So it was, it was things like that that we've talked to them about. How much experience do you have with kind of those noises? I know they've recorded some audio um, have you heard what it's going to be like while you're in the capsule? Yes, we have. Actually, um, SpaceX took that uh, information to heart, and they had already recorded a bunch of the sounds based on other flights. And so as part of our training, we actually had some training where the SpaceX training team played us all the sounds that could be possible. When these pumps come on, when that system is doing that, uh, we know what to expect. Does that kind of put you at ease a little bit, knowing what to expect? Yes. Knowing what to expect is good. And then more important, if we hear something that is not what we expect, that's, you know, that's what we really need to know. This is a bit of an interesting, uh, you know, flight using NASA's commercial crew. Um, and, and you're kind of a recent addition to this mission. So I'm wondering if you can kind of share uh, what your role is um, on this launch. What will you be responsible for on launch day? It is true. So Weechi and I both joined um, Mike and Victor late in the flow. Um, so because we are not assigned as the commander or pilot, we have, um, not as many responsibilities as they do, but we have trained as a crew. And so, um, there are mundane things as, of uh, taking care of the capsule, um, you know, changing the life support, LIO out, things like that, that, uh, Suichi and I are responsible for, but then also we're so integrated with, uh, as a crew when, we're flying the vehicle that we actually uh, serve as a second backup to what Mike and Victor are doing. So we're, we're keeping up with things are going on and, and making sure that they're not letting anything escape. Your, your commander announced that the crew decided to name this vehicle resilience. Um, and I'm wondering if you can reflect on that. What, what does the name of, of this vehicle mean to you? What's the importance of it? I think the importance of it is it, it really, it, it truly is, our feelings about what has been going on in the world this year and what we have still accomplished jointly, not just SpaceX and not just SpaceX and NASA, but jointly with our international partners. Everybody has had to be resilient. Everybody dealing with the pandemic and all the civil unrest and everything else that's going on in the world. People, people are resilient. Resilience is an important quality in humanity. And so that's what, it, it, uh, what we're hoping to reflect. It, it's more than just about the launch up there. It's uh, it's about the work that you do. Uh, what are some of the things that you're really excited about when it comes to you know the science that's going to take place on the International Space Station? It is. It is. It really is about the science. This is why we have the International Space Station to do the research up there. And it's kind of funny when you get uh, when you go through training for spaceflight. You you train the science generically. You train um, the experiments generically because, especially in the last few years, when we weren't quite sure who was launching when, you didn't know what science was actually going to be there. So we need to be prepared for. Are we going to have genetic research? Are we going to have different physiological research? Is it going to be materials? Is it going to be um, astronomy? Something like that. So we we kind of get trained in everything so that we're prepared to do anything that the ground needs us to do when we're up there. I'm not even sure if you're going to be able to disclose this, but I've got to ask, uh, have you decided on what the gravity indicator is going to be for this trip? 
<laughs> no, you can't ask that. No, <laughs> can't tell you. Sorry. <laughs> we just have to watch the stream, right? Exactly. Thank you so much. Best of luck. Uh, we'll be watching here uh, in Florida and uh, safe travels. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can find more space news stories and updates leading up to this mission online. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at Space Brendan. It's Mars opposition time. This week, the red planet will be at one of its closest points to Earth, visible as a bright red dot in the night sky. Seminole State College Planetarium Director Derek Demeter joins us to talk about the opposition and how to experience it from home. Derek, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here, as always, Brendan. Thanks, uh, Derek. So we're going to look outside and uh, we're going to see this bright red dot in the sky, uh, a little bit brighter than usual. What's happening with Mars? So yeah, Mars is on its closest approach to Earth. Uh, On October 13th, it will be only 33 million miles away from the planet. Actually, normally Venus is the closest planet to the Earth on average, but uh, Mars is getting a little upper hand this time, and it's going to be pretty close. And in fact, it's going to be the closest it's going to be until 2033. So this is actually a really great opportunity to catch the, the red planet through a telescope. A mere 33 million miles from us. Huh? <laughs> Astronomically speaking, that is right next door. I mean, I'm not as close as the moon, but, uh, you know, compared to other things out there, still right in our backyard. So tell me what we're, what we're going to see. Um, why is this so exciting for, for folks like you who, you, you know, you're an astronomer, an astrophotographer. Um, why is this super exciting for you? So normally Mars is very, very tiny through a telescope. When it's at its, at its uh, further distance from the Earth, it, it just looks like a tiny little red dot, even with a fairly powerful telescope for, you know, for most, uh, for most people who you know, or amateur astronomers that might have a decently sized telescope, you know, Mars would still look like a tiny little red dot. Now that we're getting really close to Mars, its apparent size has, has tripled almost. And it, you're, it's actually, in my opinion, in terms of size through the telescope, has the apparent resolution of, say, Jupiter, which, you know, normally is a very nice object to look at through a telescope. So you get a lot more detail. You get, you know, it's just, it's fat, amazing. I, I had the opportunity uh, a couple of days ago to look at Mars when we had some clear skies and good seeing conditions, and I was able to pick out, you know, uh, some of the fainter surface features that you normally would never, ever be able to see. And it's just, it's really cool to, you know, you see, uh, you know, Sinus uh, Meridia, and you see where Opportunity landed, and, and, and you look at all these different areas where these rovers have landed, and what, where we might go in the future, and just having a chance to see that. Is pretty cool. What's the best way to kind of take advantage of, of it being so close? How can, you know, f- folks like me who just want to look in, in our backyard or, or go online and kind of take advantage of, of this the opposition? So one of the nice things about astronomy is, you know, it, it, it's a good social distancing activity. You can go in your backyard, go in your driveway, go somewhere where you don't have trees or buildings or other structures that are obscuring your view. And you can go out and you see, you know, you go out a couple hours after sun, sunset and you see this really insanely bright reddish star in the sky. And because Mars is getting closer to us, it's really bright. I'm talking almost as bright as, you know, Jupiter uh, in the sky. It's, it was, it's, it's, it's the last uh, 
half a year, I'd been able to see Mars and it you know, went from this puny little red speck to now this vibrantly red colored star uh, like object in the sky. And just visually seeing with your eyes, just seeing this intense red object um, is, is really cool. I mean, it's not super red, but it has that reddish hue, that kind of rusty color. You can definitely tell it's they, you know, why they call it the red planet and why it was associated by many cultures for warfare and for that kind of thing because of the red hue, reddish hue. Um, and the other thing is that if you have a telescope, even a smaller telescope, you can start picking out like the, the southern ice cap and some of the uh, darker features like Certus Major uh, and some of the other you know larger features. But if you have a bigger telescope, you can continue that on. But as far as observing, if you don't have a telescope, uh, we're offering uh, on October 9th a virtual event. Uh, well, we have we're actually going to have several experts. Uh, Marsh next, which we have a uh, uh, Dr. Antonio Paris that's going to be on talking about Mars. We're going to have Dr. Cyan Proctor and her analog experience of being an analog astronaut, you know, preparing us to go to Mars. Uh, and we're going to have other people tuning in with telescopes. So if it clouds up here in central Florida, we're going to have other people to back us up to give you a view of Mars through, uh, through our telescope system. I had the chance to sit in on one of your virtual star parties, and I, it's it's so cool how you're able to kind of capture video from, you know, from the telescope's optics and, and upload it um, to, you know, Zoom or, or however you decide to meet. I mean, do you think that that there is kind of a, a silver lining to this whole social distancing thing uh, in the fact that, you know, astronomers like you are able to do a lot more outreach and, and people can just pull up their computers and, hey, we're going to be able to look at Mars. <laughs> so it's a, it's a double-edged sword for me in one end – Absolutely. I agree with you 100 percent on that. And we we've you know, we average about a couple thousand views on our on our virtual sense. So we never capture that level of participation. And we have people watching from Australia, from Japan, from Korea, from Switzerland, from the Azores, from I mean, all over the place. We have people watching, which we would never be able to do in a physical sense. Um, and what's really cool about our event we're coming up on is we also, it's going to be hooked up to a camera instead of it just being an image that we upload and stack, like you've seen, uh, Brennan, we're actually have like a live video feed of it. So this is, you'll be able to see me move around and, and, and just things. And so this was really cool to be able to see it in real in, in, in that regards. The other side though, is there is that love of the connection of putting your eye to a telescope and seeing it with your eyes. And we, after we did our moon viewing event a couple of weeks ago. I took the camera off, put the eyepiece on, and looked, and I and looked at Mars, and it was just so cool to see it with your eyes. And it doesn't, but but at the same time, it, we can do these things even during a pandemic. We can continue to inspire and to get people excited about looking at the the night sky, looking at objects that hopefully will inspire the next generation. I mean, these if we get kids looking at Mars today they may be the ones that are going to be going to Mars or going to be working on the spacecraft or the infrastructure. This, this is our way to connect people. This is why this event's so important is that if you can, if you can hook one or two kids, even just one, two kids in my program, you never know where they may go. They may go and they may end up being on your show in 20 years from now talking about their time going to Mars. So it, it's kind of, that's the, that's the beauty of it. This is the, the, the night sky and getting people to look at the night sky is the thing that just drives people to continue on that 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 
that direction. So we're, we're very thankful that we have that ability to do that even virtually. And you never know who we might, might influence who around the world may change their look on things. Mm-hmm. I'm with you. There is nothing like seeing that stuff with, with your own eyes. So I'm, I'm looking forward to the day I can come back and mess around with your really cool telescopes you have out there. Um, you mentioned sending people to Mars, but, um, this this previous summer, or, or this summer, um, was the summer of Mars. There were three different countries spent, sent three different spacecraft there. Um, I've got to imagine because Mars is going to be so close. Now that played into uh, the planning of these missions, right? That's right, exactly. So you, you kind of want to launch a few months before opposition so you can kind of get that extra oomph, if you will, to get to the planet. And that's another thing, too, is that, you know, anytime we send a spacecraft, there is a launch window, right? There's a window where we want it. Every two years or so, we get to opposition. Sometimes it's further away. The orbits of of the Earth and and Mars are not perfect circles. They're elliptical. They they variate between, you know, uh, over time. So, you know, Mars is sometimes closer, sometimes a little bit further, even in opposition. So, but either way, when we reach that time close to the opposition, that's the, that's the go to launch something. So that's why all these vehicles were launched out there uh, to head to Mars because they needed to take the opportunity. So then we got to wait a whole nother couple of years to launch another fleet. And the same thing goes, that's why, you know, like you know, 2026, we're, we're going to go back to Mars and, 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 and the perseverance, we're going to come up and, collect the samples and that's because we're going to be back at another cycle of, uh, of an opposition. So that, that goes into even human uh, launches. You know, you launch a, a human crew to Mars, you're going to have to wait a while <laughs> to go back again. Um, so that, that's another, that's another, that's a great teaching tool as well. When we, when we present this uh, event, you know, we're going to ta- we're going to hammer in that concept that, you know, going to going, doing space travel is not like, you see in Star Wars, you can just hop in. A, it's not like a plane. You just hop in, you're, you're, you're there, right? So this really is a great way to show, hey, this is why we're doing this. This is why we launched all these things. We actually have a speaker that's coming in talking about perseverance as well and talking about why we launched it now. And so I think this is a great way to connect all these things together. We've been speaking with Derek Demeter. He's an astronomer, astrophotographer, and the director of the Seminole State Planetarium here in Florida. Derek, thanks so much for speaking with us. Absolutely. Love to be here. And uh, for all those, get out there and look at Mars. It's awesome. Still to come, tiny satellites and worried astronomers. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. SpaceX launched another batch of its Starlink satellites this week, but the orbital constellation is causing some worry in the observational astronomy community. So how are these tiny satellites impacting the future of night sky observations? Well, to help answer that question, we're joined by our panel of expert scientists, UCF's Addie Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. Josh Caldwell kicks off the conversation. Well, at the moment, it's making a lot of astronomers really anxious, uh, and the impact is... Uh, what they're anxious about because we've got 600 or so Starlink satellites up, but en route to thousands of Starlink satellites and Amazon is forecasting over 3000 satellites in their network. And there are um, only a few thousand satellites to begin with. So we're talking about increasing the number of satellites in earth orbit by factors of several. And so 
there's the potential that this will really interfere with observations, particularly near the sun, so near sunrise and sunset, uh, because that's when the sunlight glints off these satellites, reflects off these satellites. They don't have lights on them. We see reflected sunlight on them. And primarily near sunrise and sunset, which is the time when, among other things, we are looking for near-Earth asteroids that also tend to be in the direction of the of the sun from our vantage point here on Earth. And, and what does it actually look like? I mean, can, can you see them with, with the naked eye? Are they showing up on observations? Like, why are scientists so upset about this? So you can see them with the naked eye. Usually, um, shortly after launch, they're most obvious um, because they're still, like, pretty closely clustered together. They're calling them, like, trains of satellites because they're sort of one after another. You can see them um, uh, overhead. Usually, by the time they get into their orbits, they're they're more difficult to see with the naked eye. But anyone who is doing astronomical observations and doing any sort of, um, basically you take a picture, right? And it can be a really quick picture or a longer exposure picture. Uh, any of those observations were get, they're getting, starting to get like streaks across the photos as this, because an ob the satellite moves in front of the stars behind it basically, right? So there's a streak of the satellite moving across the photo. Um, and so this is pretty concerning um, because they're like nice straight lines. And so in theory, you're like, oh, just ignore that part. But like, it's not actually that easy. And if they're pretty significant and blocking a lot of the image, it becomes, a, a, it really reduces the amount of data that's available for your observations. Yeah, it's it's causing uh, astronomers to have to do a lot more work. I mean, they have to they have to try and plan observations that avoid these satellites. And then if they can't do that, they have to create software and, and so forth to try and eliminate those bright streaks from their images and so forth is making things considerably more difficult. And astronomers are really lazy, so we don't <laughs> like to have to do extra work. <laughs> I'm just kidding, obviously. Um, but like making, like setting up an astronomical observation to like look at a thing in the sky at a certain time takes a lot of planning and like certain things are only available at certain on certain nights of the year. And then if all of a sudden there's all this crap in front of what you were trying to observe, that's going to mess up your data. And maybe you don't have another chance to look at that for a year. Right. That's, that's pretty upsetting to astronomers. Yeah. And, and as Josh mentioned, like, I mean, there's, there's, you know, maybe, uh, you know, a few thousand up there right now, if, if not even that yet. Um, but Starlink is looking at thousands, tens of thousands of these. There's another one going up. You know, Amazon's uh, Project Kuiper is some 3,000. Um, I mean, it's just going to get worse, right? It is definitely going to get worse. And and these are fairly bright. I mean, they're in relatively low Earth orbit. And that's a, both a good thing and a bad thing. The, the good thing about it is that the closer they are to the Earth, it, it limits the amount of time that they're in sunlight when astronomical observations are being made, but it also makes them brighter. Um, and they're not tiny satellites. We're talking about potentially tens of thousands of them, generally much brighter than the kinds of objects that the uh, uh, astronomical observations would be trying to uh, detect and, and uh, characterize. So it's, it's pretty amazing at the numbers of satellites that they're talking about and they're going to be at a range of altitudes and what the ultimate impact is going to be, we're not entirely sure. And it's partly going to depend on how well they're able to make these things not be very reflective also. It, it doesn't seem like these constellations are going away. It's not just SpaceX. It's not just 
type or there's another company out there, you know, one web that wants to have one of these. It, it's happening. Um, how how can, you know, these, you know, astronomers and these constellations kind of live and work together? What, what would need to happen um, for for you to be able to take those observations without worrying so much about it? Yeah, so there was recently a report that was done sort of outlining some of these steps and, and trying to understand what the impact of these are going to be. Um, and some of the recommendations they put forward, which is something that SpaceX is in theory trying to do a little bit of already, is like reduce the reflectance of their spacecraft. So there's stuff that you can like paint it black, basically, and it makes it less reflective. Um, or you can put shades on it so that the surfaces are less uh, reflective. Um, you could make them smaller, right? They're going to be so like CubeSats haven't really been talked about very much as a big problem because they're very small. Um, and so they don't they're not going to mess up astronomical observations in the same way. Um, one of the other options that that report outlined was like coming, and Jim mentioned this earlier, is coming up with better processing algorithms so that like if this does happen in your data, there's better ways to get rid of it. And like the companies that are building these satellites are big giant companies with awesome software engineers, right? So if they would provide that to astronomers, that could be a, a, a helpful way at least to help us sort through the, the problem. Right. They have the, they have the people and they have the money, and it would be nice if the burden wasn't all on the astronomers to try and uh, fix the problems that these things are creating. What about just sending telescopes past these constellations and just having more space-based telescopes? Would that fix the problem? Sure. SpaceX will pay for it. Turns out uh, space-based telescopes are, yeah, they're expensive and they're hard to run. Uh, you know, you, you don't get to do little fixes and stuff like that on a, a telescope that's out, you know, a million miles from Earth or something like that, so... Yet, and I mean, other than having a, you know an impact on on astronomy down here, I mean, what, what other problems could these things have? I mean, are we worried that you know these there's going to be such a, a a net of these satellites that you can't launch you know space probes into space? I mean, what other issues could we run into with with these constellations? Well, the for the on the astronomical side, uh, it's not. It's not the physical satellite like being directly in between the telescope and the thing you're looking at. It's the light reflected from that filling the pixel that the thing you would be looking at uh, would be in, which is much larger. So in terms of like a physical hazard to things being able to get out, um, I haven't seen that as a concern. And we track the orbits of these things very precisely and are able to plot the trajectories of the spacecraft that we're launching very precisely so that we can avoid those kinds of things. So I don't think that, you know, we're going to be at the point of having a sort of impenetrable shield of satellites that we can't launch things through. Yeah, I mean, as there are more and more satellites, you have to be a little bit more precise with your launch times, but we don't have high enough launch cadences and or nearly enough satellites to make that too much of an issue at this point. Just yet, but also the more of them you have up there, the more bad things can can happen. And uh, I think the more dangerous things are, you know, if, if you do have a satellite that comes apart, then you have a whole bunch of little pieces that it's harder to track. Uh, and obviously, if you're launching a, a rocket, even if a little piece you impact that at a very high speed, that's trouble. That was UCF scientists and hosts of the podcast Walk About the Galaxy, Addy Dove, Jim Cooney, and Josh Caldwell. You can get their podcast Walk About the Galaxy wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com. If you've got a story idea or question for our scientists, send it in. You can email the show at are we there yet at WMFE.org or find us on Facebook. Just search for Are We There Yet Podcast or we're on Twitter and Instagram at AWTY Space. 
Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. The show's intern is Nelly Ontiveros. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. <laughs>